High Rock Space Radio. Roger, restart. Now I'm looking at a red. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Rick Tomlinson here. Welcome to The Space Revolution. Um, I'm really thrilled today. I have a, a guest who's uh, a longtime friend, um, uh, very kind, nice person, um, you know, as opposed to myself, uh, somebody who gets along with all sides in the revolution. and. Um, has just spent his life basically in in, in service of, of creating the next generation of those of us who are going. Uh, his name is uh, Andy Aldrin. You may have heard that last name. We'll come back to that later. But um, Andy is an associate professor and program chair, Master of Space Operations at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, um, one of the most well-known, famous um, entities uh, for producing leaders in flight and now space flight. His background, gosh, I mean, UCLA, um, he's worked with all the big aerospace companies, Boeing, uh, Launch, uh, United, bleh, United Launch, yeah, those guys, ULA. A little rocket company. Yeah, a little yeah. rocket company called ULA um, and uh, a bunch of different uh, organizations like that. And, you know, and, and he also runs the um, the Aldrin Foundation now, uh, which is a very very prestigious outfit as well that, that helps out a lot of different organizations. But at the core of it all, his passion is creating leaders, creating people with an educational um, and a sort of get it done background or how to get it done background who can help lift us off this rock and. That's that's always exciting to me. These are some of the most important um, uh, jobs that we can have is, is people who are helping the next gen. You know, some of us like myself are out there trying to set that up. But personally, I'm not that great at ed- education side of things. Maybe it's because I was such a terrible student. But but Andrew, you Andy, you um you live it, you walk it, you talk it. You lift them up, and I know I've talked to a few of your students. They think very highly of you. They they have, you know, if, if we're using a board analogy, you have successfully planted the chip in the back of their necks for a long time. So welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. So in, in fairness, me. I should say some of my students call me the cosmic curmudgeon. So I have all of these little curmudgeons now running around, but that's not a bad thing. You know, you know, I've heard that term. I think it may have been you using it with yourself, but I, you know, I, I don't find you to be a curmudgeon at all. I think you're, um, I think you're, you're, you're solid on like, don't screw with me when when we're talking about facts and things like that. But right. I, I don't well, see yeah. a curmudgeon in you. It's all branding. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably a good brand to have, right? Like, you, it's not. Well, I mean, to be honest, we and this is something I believe very strongly. We need, we all need to be smart, and and we all need to understand. Um, vision is wonderful, but vision without knowledge can be kind of dangerous. It's, you know, you're literally driving without, without a map, without a steering wheel. So um, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of, that's where I fit. We all kind of have our place where we fit in the whole space ecosystem. And, and it, it, I, I do, I have a passion for the truth 
really. And so, yeah, that's what I do. And there are things that I love in space. There are things that I don't. And if I don't like it, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell them about it. But um, we have never been in a more exciting time. So it's a great opportunity to um, to bring more people into it. Because most of the students that I'm bringing in are not are in the process of transitioning to space and particularly at the Embry Riddle program. And so I just, I get excited by the work that they do. Mm-hmm. So when you, um, when you started at, at Embry Riddle um, and you got into your first course, I mean, what, what was the structure of that or what is the structure of your course or your course? Yeah. Well, I mean, the structure didn't exist. I create I, with, with Embry Riddle, this is a new program. We've only been around for two years now. Right. Uh, we're into, we're just getting into it while well, we're in our third year now. Um, what it, the, the overall platform at Embry-Riddle is in the worldwide campus, we do things hundred percent online asynchronous, which means you've got to produce all the material in advance. You give that, um, to the instructors. We've got, we've got 900 students in classes at any given time. So, I mean, it's, it's huge. I get, I get to teach a few classes, which I love doing. Um, but in order to make it work, we have, we have adjuncts that we bring in and I'm, uh, you know, if anybody out there is interested in teaching, I'm looking for real space people that have real experience doing real things out there. So um, you do a lot of work up front, building the whole course and, and I'll tape lectures for, for every week, literally of every course, whether I'm teaching it or not. And so there's a lot of work up front. Um, it also means that you know, kind of getting into the nitty gritty, it means that um, we we engage students every week. It's not like a typical graduate seminar where you you'll dump books on them and they come in and 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 you talk for three hours. You've actually got to engage them and force them into discussions. The way the program is structured, we have um, four cross cutting courses that that cover policy and law. We have one on technology and systems which kind of gives you a little bit of background. What we're trying to do with that class is connect technology to cost a little bit. So you understand you can't build flying saucers for free. You can go build flying saucers, but you better understand they cost something. Um, We have another one, which is I call survey the space ecosystem, which really just covers just very quickly. We fly through the entire system, sort of market segment by market segment. And then we have a program management slash systems engineering. And those are the cross cutting courses. Then the way it's set up, is a series of what I call industry verticals. So you do launch industry, geospatial industry, telecom, and um, and you'll look at the whole industry, everything from kind of the history to actually marketing strategy. And, and the idea is you analyze a business or create a business idea, but you don't get to talk about the technology until you really understand uh, what the market is, who the customers are, what matters to the customers. So just, you know, as an example, I'll, I'll pick on telecom because it's a big industry. And so we start out with the idea you're learning about telecommunications and satellite communications is just a part of that. In fact, a fairly small part of, of overall telecom. And you have to understand that that's the forest that you live in. And so you, you've got to build your business plans. You've got to do your business analysis based on the fact that, you know, you're literally a squirrel in a forest of other very, very big animals. Right. And so that kind of that that's the basic idea that we take across all of the industry segments, whether it's human spaceflight, 
launched and so on and so on. So um, that's the way it's structured. It's, it's unique in the sense that it's, it, it really is 25% technology, 25% management, 25% economics, and 25% policy and law. It's truly interdisciplinary. Yeah, super cool. And like I said, we've got a ton of students coming in there. So it's, it's been the most successful program that Embry-Riddle has launched um, ever, I think, certainly at the graduate level. And what that tells us is there are a lot of people that want to get into space. And so that's, you know, that's the real rocket fuel for space are the people. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, then it's, it's an undergrad four year. No, it's, it's, no, it's a master's degree. Master's degree, two years. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, what kind of uh, backgrounds do you get of students coming in? Primarily, yeah. So I'd say probably um, in terms of academic discipline, maybe about half are come in with an engineering degree, and then half are coming from all kinds of different places. In terms of what their their job background or their career background is, as I said before, we're helping people transition. In a lot of cases, it's people that want to transition from maybe doing test ops into actual management positions, into leadership positions. We get a lot of people transitioning from aviation into space. Uh, we get um, a few people, not a lot, that are really looking to um, to start a business in space. And so um, actually the program I did before this at Florida Tech was really focused on space entrepreneurship. And um, entrepreneurs need to know more. There's no question, I, I think. You know, businesses don't fail because of technology, they fail because of teams and they fail because of, uh, of markets. They don't understand the markets, but this has a much broader appeal. So yeah, a lot of people transitioning out of the military into civilian industry. Um, so um, yeah, a lot of people coming into the space force, which is kind of a cool thing. That's a very yeah. cool organization. Yeah, obviously and listeners know I have a, a little bit of a connection there and so I'm a big fan. The uh, um, so you're saying the output um, are these people that are going into the industry and a few of them are starting businesses. Are there any um, mm -hmm. stories that you have or, or examples? Where yeah, I've got, I, let me, I got one that one of my favorite stories is I've got a guy probably mid career for sure. And he was um, basically a sound engineer and a musician and he wanted to get involved in space and he got a job at Spire as a, customer engineer, which is just, that's awesome. I mean, it really, because, you know, he wasn't going to get a job if he just applied otherwise. I get a lot of students who will come out and they, since they're doing projects that are often analyzing companies or proposing ideas, I get students that are, that analyze a company that they're going to go interview with. So um, let's see, I've had one go to SpaceX. Mm -hmm. I've had, and this is literally, we've only had one year of students graduating and so i think we had we only had 10 grads even though i got a whole bunch of students only 10 of them i think graduated last year right it's a two-year program um, and you're only two years in so you're, you've only got a small sample no no sample, it would right? be they had to pretty much hit the ground running for right. that so i will have this year it'll probably be 100 or so e easily but at any rate so um uh and one of my students got a job at um at made in space at um Redwire now, of course, um, 
at any rate, so, and she had done an analysis of the company and literally just she was going in for interviews. So, you know, one of the things that does a really good job of is preparing to do a great interview and get a great job because you know, you know more about space than whoever is interviewing you. I trust you. I mean, believe me. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm okay. So you mentioned she got a job. Are you, um, how are you finding a ratio uh, or a change in the ratios as far as your experience in, in terms of uh, different genders, um, different backgrounds? Um, well, not a change in the sense that I've, we've only been around for two years, right. so there's not much to change. But so um, slightly less than 50% are women, which for a, a technical program is really good um, in terms of basic social demographics. We look like America. Um, we don't have a lot of indigenous Indians. It's one, one area where I think we're kind of down on. Yeah, I think pretty much if you look at America and you uh, and you look at the percentage of students, we're doing a pretty we look pretty diverse, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of diversity right now. And I one of my messages to the community is, look, the people that are coming into space are pretty diverse. We're doing a good job there. And so, you know, the pipeline, at least early on in the pipeline, looks pretty good, whether we start losing women, whether we start losing uh, minorities after that is is kind of another story, but I will tell you, we're doing well, and I think part of it is, and I've heard this from some of my students. Part of it is, one, it's accessible, right? So you don't, you know, have to fly to California to go to UCLA. Uh, you don't have to live in California to go to UCLA. You can get quality education without paying for it, and and which means it can it's available to I think more socioeconomic strata than otherwise. I mean, it's nothing is cheap in higher education, but we're lower cost than just about everything that's out there. And so the other thing that I think this particularly applies with women is um, they don't feel threatened by the environment. And I mm -hmm. think for women going into aerospace, you'll hear this constantly, that it's a struggle. They feel like they constantly have to prove themselves. And that's hard. And, and we don't see that. And one thing I will say that this is the most important thing, the quality of the work that these students produce at, at let's say the top 20 or 30 percent is the best I've ever seen. The best. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's astonishing how much work they will put into to writing something and, um, you know, great analysis. And, and part of it is just the format, because every week, the first week of the of the term, they come up with an idea and every week they're presenting something on their idea. And so every week we're kind of refining it. And the students that really want to learn, learn. We get students that don't want to learn and they, uh, that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, first of all, in the, on the, the gender and equality or inclusion type stuff, uh, one thing that is interesting is all these, when you're looking at that screen and you're teaching, all the little boxes are the same size and they have, you know, they're all right there. Um, nobody has to push forward or whatever, and which is sometimes uh, a cultural thing. And I think that as far as the the best ever, I, I I think a lot of that probably has to do with the teacher. In, in your case, that that you've got a you've got a loop going, you've got a, a feedback loop going. And uh, we're going to talk more about all of this uh, when we come back from the break. You are listening to IROC Space Radio. My name is Rick. Tomlinson. Our guest is Andy Aldrin. We're part of the uh, IROC 
Radio Network and part of the iHeart Radio Network as well. We'll be right back and start getting into some bigger, broader, fun stuff as well beyond education. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to the Space Revolution. Got my guest, Andy Aldrin, good friend, educator, uh, man about space. So, Andy, uh, we were talking about the, the student process, and mm-hmm. you're, you're basically creating a very, very needed pipeline. I, I want to really stress this. If you're thinking about getting into space, this is the time. It Things is. are happening, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? So um, there has never been a more exciting time in space. And I, I mean that seriously. I mean, even when we went to the moon, it was not this exciting for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons that I think we tend to overlook is it's it's not just about commercialization and things like that. It's it's about the democratization of space that, you know, 20 years ago, it took a billion dollars to build a satellite and thousands of people. And today, literally, our, our foundation has kids building satellites in high school. In fact, we're looking to do a program in middle school to have kids building satellites, the number, the number of nations with space programs, flying hardware has gone from 40 to 80 in the last five years. So um, it is, space is not just for engineers in the United States anymore. It's kind of going worldwide. And the other thing that I think is super critical in space right now is because we are making decisions now at the space, speed of business, it's really different. And so what that means is you've got to push decision-making down as far as you can. And Jeff Bezos talked about this recently in an article. In order to make those decisions, you've got to understand where you live. And a lot of what we do is teaching students about where they live so that they can make the big decisions that they need to make. And so it's, it is super exciting because you know, you know, space isn't about getting a career and sitting in a cubicle for 20 years before you actually get to do anything. It's now, you know, you can come out. If you, you go to work for a startup, you are doing everything and you're putting hardware in space in a couple of years instead of decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's important. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Bezos to go off slight tangent here. I, uh, you know, they announced that they're, they're thinking about flying this, uh, this NASA payload as their inaugural Mm-hmm. flight of their um, orbital um, right. new Glenn. Um, I actually wrote, wrote him a note, not that he ever reads my notes, but I wrote him a note and I said, look, don't do that. I think you should, uh, you know, if you look at what Elon did, he flew a car and what it did was it got a lot of attention. It's helped sell his other brand. And if it blew up, eh, you know, not a big deal. On this one, I, I suggested what he do is like get people to uh, vote for their favorite books of all time available mm-hmm. on Amazon, right? Um, put them all in there and fly those. Because what I'm concerned about on this flight, not to get in, and, and Jeff's a friend, I don't want to go after him or anything, but what I'm concerned about is the time that those teams put into those payloads to, to building these spacecraft and then to have it potentially go wrong and it's, it's a first flight you know i'm worried about that I, what are your thoughts on on these kind of the way these these guys approach well, so i mean that it, that's it is unusual because typically first flight you you put something out there and you do it on the you give somebody a really good deal and they understand the risk going in and often 
First flights to, are, are commercial satellite companies because if you've got a you've got a constellation of fifty satellites out there, GeoBirds, and and you lose one, you get the insurance payment, and every you know you're fine. So yeah, this is um, there is a lot of risk to it, but on the other hand, um, you know Jeff has made it clear that he's going to continue to support it. So it's not like if they have a failure, um, it's it's going to kill the company. Which you know for for Elon when he did his first Falcon nines, the heavy was that came later. But when he did his first Falcon nines, those were real missions. And um, if he had yeah. failures with the Falcon nine the way he did the Falcon one, he wouldn't be in business today. So um, I, there's some risk to it. Um, there's some risk to it. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the way I'd do it. But yeah, yeah. And again, I, there's confidence, and then there's confidence you know and uh oh the first flight of any new mission for a new a uh, new space system um it's challenging so um what what are your thoughts i mean you you've been through you know the show's called the space revolution right mm-hmm. and you and i have had a couple of conversations i know that you do straddle traditional in, in new space well, i mean this is not the first time we've done this revolution right it's by my yeah. count the third lay that out I want to hear more about that. So, I mean, the first time, the first time we built the shuttle, remember, we were going to launch 50 times a year right. and it was going to cost $8 million, right? We missed that bogey by about like a billion, right? In terms of the cost of the cost of the shuttle. But what was going to happen if you go back and look at it, everyone was kind of basing their space architectures on cheap flights on the shuttle. And then you're going to be flinging out all kinds of space tugs and space. Uh, Spaceflight Industries was created. Max Faget was going to do an in-space manufacturing. Almost all of the cool stuff you see today, we were talking about then. And so with Challenger, that all literally went up in smoke. Second revolution was um, was Iridium. Remember, we were going to darken the sky, which, you know, Teledesic was going to put up 984 satellites at one point. And that was astonishing. Astonishing. Right now, that's sort of pocket change, but we were going to darken the sky with satellites and uh, Iridium, there were, there were lots of things that were kind of a mess with Iridium, but it failed and it took down the whole revolution that time. It really did. And so here we are, and it's the third time, and a lot's different. And I think part of it is kind of the things that we've been talking about, the breadth, if you will, institutionally is so much stronger that I don't think... You know, the last two times we failed, there was literally one event, one company that that went bust. I don't, you know, I think even if, if Blue or SpaceX failed as a company, um, we'd be, we'd survive. We'd get through it. It would be, it would be a tough day for investment. Um, but we're in tough times for investment right now. And it's not, I actually see what's going on right now. It's a little shakeout that we're kind of going through as, um, Kind of having some really positive things coming out of it because we're seeing companies merging. There are re- the economy that the space economy is starting to be an economy, right? Which is cool. So I think it's different this time, but it is. Um, it's different, but it's going to be. It, it's going to be hard, right? You can't. Five years ago, you hang. You know, basically put a, a you know a shingle that says "Rockets are us," and people start throwing money at you. It is not that way anymore, and that's good. That is really good. Well, um, yeah, it's I, it's 
So, I mean, the other part of it is, mm-hmm. so I was intellectually, if you will, raised at research institutes. So I was at the Institute for Defense Analysis. I was the RAND Corporation. You can't go through the, I was taught by John Logston. You can't go through those experiences without understanding, without understanding it's important to understand where the ground is, right? What, and, and so I always ask my students, I always ask my myself, does this stuff make sense? And, and it's literally, you know, you can it, you spend a few minutes asking the right questions and just answering based on assumptions. And you can figure out a lot of stuff. There is just, there's no way for it to make sense. There's some things you go, wow, that, that really has some likes to it. Maybe it's going in a different direction than you think. But um, so, yeah, I think it's important to figure out whether it makes sense. And I do that. And I'm, um, some would say intolerant of nonsense, but it's what I do. No, you're a you're you're a good product of. I used to call Logsdon the uh, the professor who discovered the future the day after it happened, um, <laughs> you know. And any, but that's that's a his being conservative, and I think you've you've picked up on some of that, and and yet you're embracing the future, and, um, you know, coming out of a, a ULA and Boeing background, I mean, um, what would your advice be to the big aerospace companies that are out there looking at what's happening with new space, with all the, the, the new generation that's coming? Yeah. So one of the things to be aware of is that um, new space is not evenly distributed, right? If you look at, for example, downstream applications, all of that stuff is commercial and all of it is making boatloads of money. It has the potential to make boatloads of money. Um, If you look at the hardware side of space, it's still pretty much government. I mean, NASA is doing some really interesting things, but if you look at rockets and spacecraft, the vast majority of those are are paid for by government. So that's kind of less new spacey. However, my recommendation to to Boeing, to Lockheed, is um, first you have to recognize that in their position, accepting the amount of risk that that we're putting on the industry is something that they just can't digest that in their system. They literally do not have the, uh, if you will, the um, the corporate biome to digest. They don't have the enzymes to digest that stuff. So I think when you look at things um, and figuring out how to do spinoffs or um, subsidiary companies like Boeing with Millennium, if, as long as they don't do what Motorola did with Iridium, um, it can. I think that's a model which potentially can work, but you're never going to get Boeing to accept the kind of risk that the real market demands. And so, I mean, Boeing just went out there and said, we are not doing any more fixed price development contracts. And, and if you, and, and the sentiment is the same in the other big companies um, because they've been burned badly. And, and, and a lot of it is literally because, you know, they're the ones taking the torch to themselves, to be honest with you. I mean, what, what happened with Boeing and, and commercial crew was pretty much self-inflicted. I mean, you could see it happening beforehand. Absolutely. (laughs) That they would never be able to do that kind of a program on a fixed price development con uh, contract, given the way they operate with NASA, because, they're used to dealing with NASA human spaceflight and uh, safety and mission assurance and doing anything that they want because that's what they've always done. 
And, and I don't know the specifics of, of how SpaceX was able to keep them at bay, but I think they have. And, and it's worked finally. I think part of it is NASA got trained, right? And, um, you know, so the, the training has kind of gone both ways. But so for, I, I think there'll be um, an evolution from those companies. They will come back into the market when they understand the risk more. But the thing to remember is for Boeing, particularly, space is not a big market. Certainly commercial and and civil space is just not a big market. It's a, you know, it's a, what, a hundred billion, I don't know, a hundred billion dollar company. And if you looked at the whole NASA space portfolio, you might, it might be down to a couple of billion, right? So that's just that David Calhoun does not stay up late at night worrying about these things, except for the fact that he's got this embarrassing near billion dollar uh, write down from commercial crew, but that's a that's pennies compared to the KC forty six issues that Boeing's got. So they're going to be they will come back when it makes sense to them. But it, it's kind of it's a little bit it is a little disturbing that I I'm not sure Boeing is going to be in the human spaceflight business in ten years. If you look at it, every single human spaceflight piece of hardware had a Boeing logo on it until. Orion and CTV. And that's, so that's weird. Yeah. It's definitely a, a changing time and it may, it may be yeah, that the, the dinosaurs don't die off. They just migrate <laughs> to, to a place where they can live. They do. They'll migrate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. And it's, I mean, we're seeing this, it is such a different universe. And I, I do want to say, you know, to acknowledge your point, that a lot of the, the funding is coming from the government. I actually am, am for that. And it's it's how it comes from the government and what its intention is versus the fact that it comes from the government. If, if, they're, if they're doing it the right way to help start a new industry or a new level of industry, I'm, I'm for that, you know? Because um, some people are like, well, you know, SpaceX is making all its money off the government. Yeah, but look at what's happening in terms of this new culture that's being created. Yeah. I don't... So that, that's all good. But- Anyway, we're going to come back. And okay. um, speaking of culture, we're going to talk a little bit about the international stuff and, and some of the co- competitions going on and, and, and some of the stuff like that. You are listening to uh, IROC Space Radio. My guest is Andy Alder. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You can follow me at Rocket Rick on the X, formerly future known as Twitter thing, whatever it is that Elon's calling it today. And uh, we'll be right back. Spacers, and I mean you, if you're paying attention this far into the show, you are a spacer. That's all there is to it. This is the litmus test. If you can make it halfway through the space revolution, you're a spacer. So uh, my guest is uh, Andy Aldrin. We're, we're going all over the map, as usual. Um, and um, we were just talking about commercial, private sector, kind of uh, the shift away from aerospace to space is almost one of the best ways to put it in my mind, whether it's new space, old space, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's aerospace and a culture that comes from cost plus and lobbying based and congressional district powerhouse type stuff, which will never go away, of course, but moving into pay for delivery, efficiency. um, And then of course my big one, which is getting away from a use it and throw it away culture to reusability. So Andy, I want to, I want to run this by you. I was listening to um, our friend uh, Namrata Goswami, who is mm-hmm. 
one of the best experts on, on China, India space program at a Space Force event I was at this week um, working at. And as usual, she is like spot on with what's happening in China. And it jumped out at me. Uh, she kind of covered this and I looked it up on my own. But we have this thing that we, we use to comfort ourselves in the West. We're like, oh, you know, big socialist ent- company countries will never be able to duplicate free enterprise. And then I looked at it more closely. China has, if you count the the um, their own space entity, seven entities that are working on reusable spaceships. And mm-hmm. I've, I've already talked to the, I've explained to the audience of this show is that I make a difference between spaceships, rocket ships, and rockets. You throw rockets away, but you don't throw rocket ships away. So I'll use rocket ships. Um, they're all working on, and so they've created sort of like a, a quasi-free enterprise appearing thing where you've got seven companies who are basically copying Jeff and Elon and competing, and they're coming at us, right? downstream they're going to be out there in the market um and then we've got maybe four and their own and our own government which is not doing that what are your what are your thoughts how do we how do we step up in this competition that's coming well so i mean the first thing is um i was raised as a sovietologist so i spent my early career tromping around um tromping around what was then the Soviet Union, actually with Jeff Mamber, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. when he was doing some of the Zanarina stuff and I was doing my research. Um, and so I I got to look at a lot of the myths of the, you know, the, the Soviet machine and how powerful it was supposed to be in space. And um, it was really pretty inefficient. Um, massive, massive amounts of, of humanity working on it. And so my first reaction is a bit of a contrarian to to the notion that that China is is catching up is that Chinese state enterprises are among the least efficient organizations on the globe. They just they are they're inefficient. And if you look at some of these things, you know they've got hundreds of thousands of people at some of these organizations. Like Cask, I think has got one hundred eighty thousand people. Um, it is massive. And so you throw one hundred eighty thousand people at something, you can do something interesting and you can compete, but I don't really, um, I don't see that so much as, and it doesn't matter whether it's commercial or not really, it's just, it's competitive, but it is just simply throwing a lot of money at, at those things. And so I don't, I'm not saying I'm discounting it. I'm just not that quick to jump on that particular bandwagon and, and, and probably I'm wrong, but, and the bandwagon I'll leave and I'll miss it. But and so I at least look at that and I haven't I haven't convinced myself otherwise about that. Having said that, I mean, we are in a competition with China and um, there's good news and bad news there. And it's mostly bad news, but we are headed toward bipolarity in, in, a, in a national security sense and in an economic sense. And we did that right in the Cold War. And um, the good news in all of this is bipolarity actually leads to some stability, strategic stability. What concerns me is in the process of getting to bipolarity, because we are unquestionably, if you look across the board, we are unquestionably way ahead of China in just about everything. If you look at, if you look at the data rates of their uh, commsats, they're abysmal. And, and, and so 
the problem is as as you start to see a leveling out it gets to be very unstable and in in a real war which is a real possibility i don't deny that at all the first thing that that happens is that that our adversary china is going to go after our space assets and that's that is because we are as a nation totally dependent on our space assets because we're a global power china is still a regional power they would like to be global but they're still a regional power and they're not dependent on their space assets so they are far better off after the fact of, of a, a war in which everything in space gets wiped out and you could say the same for iran the same for north korea but I, honestly i don't really care about north korea but so that's strategic instability which is a bad thing and it's we are doing a lot of things towards building a more resilient um, space architecture, and and, and you know, it, and the best deterrent is invulnerability, right? Because if they can't knock you out, what is their incentive to do anything if they're fighting a losing battle? So all of that is kind of good stuff. As far as competing in different areas, my least favorite business in space is launch. It is just it is a really really tough business, and we will always be competing with whether it's Russia, whether it's China, maybe it'll be Iran some point in the future, we'll always be competing with other nations in the launch business. As long as we've got solid launch at a good price on our side, I'm kind of okay with that. I want to compete. Uh, I want to compete in calm. I want to compete in geospatial. I want to compete in the places where you actually generate money, right? And I, you know, the geospatial industry is just is ripe for an absolute revolution. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not that worried. I am honestly not that worried. Yeah, about that. I, I get you. And it's funny you mentioned the calm thing. I watched um, film recently on uh, Netflix, scary as hell, and yet like very slow moving. And um, um, it's called Leave the World Behind. And <laughs> these people are renting an Airbnb. It's Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and pretty big actors renting an Airbnb out in the country away from everything. And suddenly the cell phones go dead and the TV goes dead. Right. And they do, they do actually cut to a shot in this show of a satellite that looks like it's on station, just kind of drifting off like this. And then you don't know, you don't know anything else. You're just out there. We are so dependent on those networks. We are so dependent on those technologies um, that we, we don't have a lot of backup. You know, we're not, we're not ready for that kind of a thing. And um, I, you know, I just off topic, but I would watch the show because it, it gets at that point that you, you just brought up, which is very true. Yeah. Right? So you're not worried about it. And, you know, God bless America. I'm not either. I'm, I'm excited. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this uh, otherwise. But in the long run, as, as we're starting to move off planet, what are your thoughts in terms of leadership or what do you think we should be doing as a nation? Um, I know we have people listening around the world, so this goes for your nation too, whoever you are, wherever you're listening. But what do you think we should be getting our leaders to be focused on in terms of uh, accelerating and, and making this happen in a better way? Yeah, I think the most important thing is figuring out whether you can actually create a space-based economy based on the moon. I mean, I, I I think there's a lot of stuff to to understand whether it makes sense, but I I can see lots of things that do make sense, and I think the most important thing 
for the United States um, and our, if you will, our, our Artemis allies is to commercialize, to, to commercialize the moon, to do what we can to reduce the risk to the point where real money, real billions of dollars will get invested um, in building infrastructure on the moon. And I think the most important thing for NASA to do is to facilitate that process. Um, we can do better than putting flags and footprints on the moon. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right there. The I've got a piece I'm actually working on and probably be out by the time people see this is, um, is that, you know, as you know, and we're going to, this is going to lead into something we'll, we'll get there, but NASA has lived out of the psychology of not getting bogged down on the moon for about what, 35 years, 40 years. Yeah. And even today we had a presentation at the space force thing I was at and NASA did a presentation. It's moon to Mars. Right? So they're not really going to the moon. Right? China, man, they're going. They're going. But NASA's not really going to the moon in terms of like, we're going there. We're going to build it out. And um, and I know that that is a culture of, and I get the point, you know, we've, we've done the moon. We're going on to Mars. Um, yeah, somebody said been there, done that. Huh? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of been, yeah. And, and uh it, it's really, you know, I, I get it, but at the same time, I think it, I think it's important that we learn how to go to Mars by going to the moon. But at the same time, you know, it, it's like we need to be building that in so that, look, hey, NASA, if you're going to the Mars, that's great. But you need to build in some stuff that helps grow this economy. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I don't think we go to Mars until NASA gets off of the moon. And I don't think NASA gets off of the moon until we figure out a way to get private the private sector for pay, to pay for being on the moon and mm. so i don't i really don't I, they're not we will not have the option of just leaving the moon behind um if there is some strategic value to it and i think there will be yeah. it's kind of hard to imagine no strategic value to it and so if nasa wants to get off of the moon they need to get private industry in there to take their place and, so you're and that's saying not, yes you're saying I like this actually. This is interesting. That the the judgment, the the way we ascertain whether NASA has been successful on the moon is how how much they've helped create a private sector on the moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not. If you look at NASA's goals for the moon, they talk about commercialization, but it's about number fifteen out of twenty. Yeah, and and that's that should be the primary objective is to reduce risk to the point where we can at least determine whether it makes sense. But there are a whole lot of other strategic things going on that are going to think are, will make it really difficult for NASA to leave the moon. And they, NASA can only afford to do one big human spaceflight program at a time. Right. They, I think they can't do the moon and the Mars and moon and Mars at the same time. And so that's, that's kind of the business strategy reality. Mm -hmm. How would you see them this doing that? What 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 would you recommend? Like, hey NASA, do these things to help the private industry get rolling on the moon. So it's going to take leadership from the Space Council, and and it's going to take probably some organizational changes within NASA to make it clear that this is the drive. This is your mission, um, and I think it's 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 this isn't going to be a 
public interest sort of thing. We just need to get the people to rise up and say we need to commercialize the moon. We need to actually uh, play the hard game of, um, of politics on this, that, that I think industry has got to lobby the hill. Um, I think um, industry has got to lobby government, the White House, but they're going to have to pay. They're going to have to come in and say, all right, if, if you guys are going to do this, we're in and, and we're in. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's hard because NASA wants industry to pay for everything and industry wants the government to pay for everything. And so that negotiation process is going to be a challenge. And with the moon, it's particularly challenging because, you know, you're talking about a public-private partnership that's going to last for decades and is going to transform from, you know, partnerships on little science missions to partnerships literally building massive deca-billion-dollar um, industrial facilities on the moon, potentially. Right, right. Yeah, it's, but it, it probably has to start, that probably has to start at the White House and be in a really, I'm not a huge fan of policy statements. I'm a bigger fan of budgetary actions, right? Policy statements are policy statements. Budgets are policy, right? That's where it's real, right? When you put money down. So, I mean, that's what has to happen. And, and the budget budgetary process um, is necessarily, um, in theory, at least a collaborative venture with the White House and Congress. But so it's got to come from Congress. And I, I don't know, um, I don't have a really good sense for the temperature of, of, of Congress on, on this kind of stuff. So, and it's not, it's not something that has to happen today. You probably need to figure out a little bit with, with clips and some other things to demonstrate there really is a there there. Yeah. That's what has to happen in my view. I know. I, I agree with you. And we'll talk about somebody who may or may not agree with either of us. in when we come back in a minute, somebody who's famous for saying, get your ass to Mars. And, um, <laughs> We'll be right back. You're listening to iRock Space Radio. My guest is Andy Aldrin. You can follow me at, at Rocket Rick. Spacers. All right. So the space revolution rolls on. And um, I can't have you on the show, uh, Andy, uh, without talking a little bit about your dad. And I, I want to give you a little bit of background on that with me. Um, obviously, as a kid, you know, I watched Apollo happening. There's actually a documentary out there called uh, Orphans of Apollo, which is about myself and yeah. some friends taking over the Russian space station for a little while. But the one uh, I will say, I wasn't orphaned by your dad. Um, I, uh, I got to meet him early on, and um, he has always, always been just, I, I can't think of another word for it, cool. He's cool. He's like the cool astronaut, right? And I mean, he does. He does have a tendency to 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 go on a little bit. I I was married to an actress in uh, New York City at one point, and she would get upset. And this is back in the day when you had answering machines. So that's how long I've known your dad. And she would get upset because she wasn't really a space conversant. That there was this this guy named Buzz who would call up and leave messages and fill up the tape, so that she couldn't get her callbacks from her acting. <laughs> and I was like, Do you realize who that is? Can we save those tapes? And, um, but your dad is, is, has always been wonderful. And, you know, he, he, uh, we gave him the Earth Life Foundation. We gave him our Space Cowboy Award a few years ago because he could have just taken that, you know, hey, I walked on the moon. I'm cool. I'm done. Right. And, and gone off and, you know, whatever, been a senator, done something else, whatever. Instead, what he did was he kept mixing it up in terms of 
working the activism side, pushing, pushing, pushing. He was always acknowledging of, of other revolutionaries, people like myself. He would, he would talk to us like this, straight across, eye to eye, rather than talking down. He didn't tolerate BS. We know that. I think I can see that in his son just a little bit. And um, speaking of sons, you and I both talked about this, having military dads. It's a very interesting uh, place to be. But I think overall, um, he is definitely one of my heroes and has always been. And um, I know it must be something interesting for you growing up with a dad like that. What, you know, how has that felt for you um, in terms of, of life? Um, how has it felt? Well, I don't know, because I don't have anything else to compare it to. There is that. You know, when, no, when I grew up, um, we lived at the end of a, um, a cul-de-sac. So we had one of these pie-shaped lots, and there are five houses behind us. And three of them were astronauts. One of them was Alan Bean. And you couldn't swing a dead cat at my elementary school without hitting an astronaut's kid. So it was just, it was like it was no big deal. So I don't really, I don't have another dad to compare it to. Right. Um, so it was kind of normal. But I, I, I will um, totally echo what you're saying in that, um, you know, my dad stayed in space because he was passionate about it. He was passionate about his ideas. And when he hadn't even finished doing world tours, in fact, he hadn't even flown before he was geeked up about, about the shuttle. And I would, you know, he'd talk to me about what, whether you needed to have crew and the booster. And he said, you don't need crew and the booster. And Air Force said, no, you got to have crew and everything. And he's, but he was already passionate about the next program before he even finished Apollo. And, and he went from one passion to another passion to another passion. And, um, and most of the time I said, dad, this doesn't make sense. And at the time, it didn't, right? Space tourism didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that you could turn the shuttle over to commercial pilots, but there are commercial pilots that would float in and out of our house wanting to fly the shuttle commercially. And so he was way ahead of his time, yeah. which was really frustrating for him. It was sometimes frustrating for me. I mean, you talk about the tapes. We, I just remember one incident where um, I, I was painting my deck and you think you got a lot of calls from Buzz. <laughs> it was like a daily thing. And so I'm painting my deck and he calls and he's, yeah, I got to talk to you about something. I go, dad, I'm painting a deck. I really, you know, there's a storm coming in. I got to get this done. And he said, I, I just got to talk with you. About it. Literally, I put the phone on the railing and painted the deck. And occasionally I would walk over and go, yeah. Uh, uh. And he, of course, he's talking loud enough that I can hear what he's saying. So, I mean, that was always out there. But today, as I look back, you know, I had one of his friends say to me that, you know, well, you know, he was right about a lot of that stuff. And, and he was, and he was, and his crowning achievement, um, Earth, Mars cyclers is, is brilliant. And I mean, it's a brilliant concept and it's, you know, we, when I was at Florida tech, we played around a bit with it. And it is, there is so much that you can do with that kind of a concept. And that will be, that will be the foundation for um, inhabitation of Mars, long-term permanent habitation of Mars. That will be the foundation. When that happens, I don't know, um, but it's certainly not going to happen. That uh, you know, as, as yeah. So for those who don't, cyclers are like the figure eights, and they go around and 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 spin around. But 
No, it's literally it's literally uh, something that's in an orbit around the Earth and the around the Sun, yeah. and it just happens to intercept the Earth and Mars, and um, and so once you once you accelerate this thing, you don't require any more fuel in theory. Now, if there, you add a little bit of delta V here and there, you can do some really cool stuff, but it is um, it's a remarkable way of doing interplanetary travel simply because all of your mass. All the mass that you need for radiation shielding, um, you only accelerate once. And if you want to talk about trip times, you know, everybody's sort of geeked up about the idea of nuclear thermal propulsion because it'll get you there in three months. Well, actually, a cycler kind of likes a 100-day trajectory, Earth-Mars trajectory. And so you're there. And all you have to do is accelerate a relatively small spacecraft to rendezvous with, with the, the cycler. And so, yeah, but there's so many of those things, you know, flyback boosters, all kinds of really cool things. And, and it's just, you know, it's a sequence of really interesting. And that's what kept my dad going. No, and that's I look, I, I love the cycler idea. And it, it's almost like a cross between um, like a, a cruise ship and a mobile island that is just floating back. And like if you had an island yes. that floated back and forth between Europe and the U.S., right, and you could hang out on that. But I, I do want to say this. That is great, and it will be his legacy. I am convinced, and I think anybody who's been in the activism realm, his biggest legacy was inspiring us because it meant so much to us at different points to have someone in the vaunted, the vaunted world of the astronaut corps who got it, who would come and, and show up at our events, be a part of it with us, and especially somebody of his level, like the astronaut of astronauts, and he gets it. He may have different technologies and get into debates about we're going to do it this way or we should do it that way. But he was there, and that helped us stay alive before the Elons, before right. the Jeff sure. showed up, right? He was like this figurehead of authority who was a rebel. He was a revolutionary. He was, he was a space revolutionary. He still is. He still is. At the time, and and then he just that helped so much. I mean, it was and here's the irony, Andy, and is that the two guys, the two astronauts that got it the most, were one of the first and one of the last. Your dad and Jack Schmidt, right? Would, and they both got it. They were like, "Yeah, we got to go. We got to go back. We got to go to the moon. We got to go to Mars. We got more people to put out there. Let's go." So, um, I will always give you that. And 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 I just, I mean, it, it's just huge that legacy. The fact that you came out of that and didn't go preacher's kid, which to me, you know, preacher's kid is always the wildest kid who rebels against everything his dad stood for, and you're building on it. That that's amazing too. And so, look, um, I want to change track, just really different, because we're at the end, and, and I want to have some fun with you. And I am actually curious with you. Um, I ask my guests a lot of these, uh, several of these questions, just because I want people to, you know. Your, your folks, your folks, your regular folks. And um, um, the, the first one is, <laughs> I like to have fun with this. Like you're cruising over the moon. We're there. You know, we're going back and forth. You're cruising several thousand clicks an hour so you can get the sense of motion flying over the craters. Shackleton, you're going over it. Maybe some lights down below in it. And you're, you're kicking back. What would you be listening to? That's easy. Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd? Of course. Oh, dude, we should be roommates. <laughs> I can't yeah, marry well, you, but we could be roommates. Well, I could marry you. Yeah, absolutely. Really? Oh, yeah. There you go. 
best band ever. It uh, might not be Dark Side of the Moon, though. It might be Wish You Were Here. Wish You Were Here. Mm. Shine on your crazy diamond. I don't know. I it's... like it. I like it. There's an early one by them you should listen to before Dark Side of the Moon. It's a song called Echoes. No, I haven't. Okay. It's just, it's haunting. Go listen to it. It's about 30 minutes long. Now, back in the day, it would help if you had chemicals in you, but you could do without. And um, it's amazing. It's a very spacey song. Um, that's great. Uh, who's your favorite nonfiction, nonfiction author or book? I don't know. It could be, I read history. So it could be Stephen Ambrose, maybe. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay. Is there a favorite space nonfiction book? Space nonfiction. I am not pointing at the high frontier behind me because that doesn't no. have to be for everybody. Um, Huh. Uh, no, there are several. <laughs> it might be McDougal. Okay. Heavens in the Earth. Heavens in the Earth. Okay. Great. Great. What about fiction? Science fiction. Let's say science fiction. Oh. What is that? I can't I can't read it. It says don't panic. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, good. Good. I keep a towel with Nothing, me at all. Yeah, time. I mean that um I have there um there's a there's a lecture lurking in my brain that I haven't spit out yet on, on the significance of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, just the philosophical significance of the Hitchhiker's Guide, because there's just so much in there. And so I the little story on this that didn't directly have to do with me, but there's this whole thing, six times nine equals 42, right? And so my engineering friends, well, okay, obviously it's in age 13. And so a, a friend of mine, who's a brilliant engineer uh, from the UK, actually was escorting him around. And so at some point he, he said, so Douglas, it, it's six times nine is 42, base 13, right? And, and Douglas said, I don't tell jokes in base 13. And to me, that was, that was kind of devastating because to me, the six times nine equals 42 is a phenomenally philosophical statement. Because it just basically says, look, the whole universe doesn't add up. Get over it. And um, and he was just telling jokes. <laughs> so it's a little disappointing, but there's so many things in the Hitchhiker's Guide that you can, which is the true, that's the beauty of, of great literature. And it is that it, it, it inspires you to think of things that maybe the author didn't really think of. But um, so, yeah, the Hitchhiker's Guide. No one believes this, but I'm, I'm not a huge science fiction reader. Okay, I could get that. And you know, the thing about um, about him and and his book is, I've heard these other stories about. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that, and I wasn't trying to be clever, and da 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 da. Yeah, okay, fine. Okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That, but that's what came out, right? And and all of that. So. Um, oh, it is. I mean, look, you know, you get the people ask you who are the three people that you'd like to sit down and have dinner with, and he's one of them. Doug Adams. Because I want to know. I really, I really do want to know. I'll have to add that one. One of the three people you'd like. Uh, so what's uh, what's your favorite film? Oh. Either way. It could be fiction, non, uh, science fiction, just anything. Oh, sure. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Wow. Very heavy British uh, Secret Service. Uh, MI, what's it? MI3? Oh, yeah, it's just, MI4? It's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Um, very, very cool stuff. So as we push towards the end here, we have a, a broad audience. Um, globally, we also have... Uh, demographically. Um, I like to help inspire and, and take people like yourself who are, who are living the dream, you're, you're making it happen, um, and ask them, what, what do you say 
especially you, you're an educator, you're in the job of molding the clay, you know, into something fine, shining up the diamonds. Um, what would you say to a kid out there, to somebody out there, college, whatever, maybe they're a bad student like I was, a good student like you were, whatever, and they're thinking about getting into this field, but they, but they, they, they're intimidated. What would you say to them? Well, I mean, the first thing is a more general comment, which is follow your passion. You're only going to be good at something that you're passionate about. And the worst thing to do would be studying aerospace engineering because you want to get involved in space and having a miserable time at it. And then you're just your life's going to suck. Um, follow your passion and don't be afraid to to take a leap. And and it, the the best things usually happen. Um, are unplanned. You didn't know that your career was going to take that kind of a direction. So if you're passionate about space, find something to do in space. I mean, the difference between space now and 20 years ago is we need everything. And one of the things that we did when we put this program together is we went out and um, we talked to executives in government and industry and, and what do you guys want? And, and one guy put it really well. He said, look, I got I got 2,500 engineers that work for me. And, and I make a lot of decisions that are bad engineering decisions. They're good decisions, but they're bad engineering decisions. And if you know engineers, they, a bad engineering decision is literally treasonous. And, and they need to understand that there are a lot of things going on that aren't just tied to engineering, that they go to making a space program work and I got to have them on the same page. You need to help me by teaching people what the whole thing, how it all ties together. And so we need, we need people. We need, actually, we need more program man managers that understand the broad perspective. Best program manager I ever worked for at Boeing was an English major. I kid you not. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Outside of the box. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Right, right, right. Perfect. Andy Aldrin, it's been uh, a great pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Space Revolution. And hey, Rick, it's, it is always fun, but especially fun in this kind of an environment. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you, sir. All right, spacers, we will see you next time on the Space Revolution here on IROC Space Radio, part of iHeartRadio Network. And we are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.